0: It is beautiful to come your way again here on the Green Living Chats podcast. My name is David and I'm your host on this podcast. Today we bring you an exciting conversation on our environmental sustainability segment. Guess what? We are taking a look at the fashion industry. Well, why the fashion industry today we are taking a look at the fashion industry because it's one of the industries with the longest supply chain and has so many activities going on that impacts us socially environmentally and economically so on today's episode Ogla Johnston Antoneva joins me on the podcast to have an interesting conversation on what is happening in the fashion industry. Ogla is a leading consultant and opinion leader when it comes to sustainability and circular fashion industry in Russia. She is a fashion consultant to a lot of fashion brands and independent designers. She is also an educator and visiting lecturer at top Russian universities and schools of fashion and design. And one thing that you'll be noticing from this conversation is Ogla is the best storyteller. And you're just gonna enjoy the conversation we had with her from the diverse experience she has had from living in different parts of europe and russia experiencing all the cultures and how the fashion industry has evolved throughout the years. So today, Ola introduces her background and how she grew up getting into the industry from design to fashion and getting exposed to all the things that happened in the industry. She tells us about how the fashion industries evolved in her own eyes with the experience she had in different countries. And we talked about how she got to know about how the fashion industry is impacting the environment and what she did after knowing this truth about the industry. We dived into what fast fashion is, and I'm sure you have heard about this already, but we dived a little deeper into it for you to be educated and to learn something from this. But before we get into this conversation, I want you to know that this is part one of a two-part series, and in next week's episode, we are going to continue part two of this conversation. So just grab a coffee and let's dive into this conversation. You are listening to the Green Living Chat podcast, a podcast where we discuss emerging environmental issues around the world and to find sustainable solutions. I'm your host, David Ewisimansa. We use this platform to support environmental-related initiatives, researches, and projects. This podcast is brought to you by EcoWarmet Solutions in Ghana with a mission to going back to green. So join us on this train with new episodes this and every Sunday. Here we go. Hello Olga, thank you so much for joining me today on the Green Living Chats super excited to have this conversation and really since I got to know about you oh boy I've been just wanting to have a conversation with you so really finally welcome to the podcast
1: thank you very much thank you David and thank you listeners for having time to listen to what I am here to say and thank you for inviting me yeah really looking forward to our chat
0: (laughs) it's really exciting you don't I mean people listening might not understand why I'm super excited because we've been really wanting to have conversation but you know sometimes time becomes a little bit of a struggle to have a common good time to to talk I'm super excited and even the way we got to meet is is just even interesting so okay just a background I had a podcast interview with um, a lady from Russia called Elena, and she connected me. I should have a conversation with this lady because she's super, super good and super, super fun. So, already I had a mindset <laughs> before coming to meet you, and I was super excited to talk to you. So, first time I spoke to you, I was like, oh boy, this lady just has so much to say and so exciting. So, <laughs> (laughs) Thank you, Elena, wherever you are. It was super exciting connecting the two of us. So yeah, it is really exciting to have you on the podcast today. I really want to dig into a lot of things and I'm really going to learn a lot of things that I don't know about because fashion is not my thing, but we got you here to tell us everything that we need to know. But before we get into the conversation, really, we just want to know a little bit about you. How was it growing up? Um, where do you really come from, where do you live right now? I know you live in Germany, so it's like a mixture of culture. I think you have a very interesting story to tell.
1: Yes, David, thank you. Yes, I am Russian. I am right now talking to you from the west of Ireland, but normally I'm based in Berlin these days. And Elena, I also met online, like you, through the topic of sustainable fashion. And I would be most unlikely candidate for The expertise on sustainable fashion, given that I come from eastern Siberia, it's a place of immense beauty, but also it's quite remote, where five hours flight east of Moscow. And that's where I was born, in that part of Russia. Actually, on the biggest freshwater lake in the world, Lake Baikal. It's a big treasure. And today, with the climate situation, more and more we appreciate the resources we have. And even to me, it was just a lake. Immense, beautiful, powerful. Now its value, of course, it's grown more also in the eyes of the the whole world, apart from being a UNESCO heritage place for its beauty and this age, it's more than 25 million years old. It has a unique system. It has the pure fresh water and very unique But you wouldn't expect people there to be right in the center of the fashion world or sustainable fashion. And what happened to me, my journey was quite long, I suppose, as I was always interested in fashion. I was growing in the Soviet Union. My mother was making clothes for me. Uh, she's a physicist, wow. she's a mathematician, always working in, the, in that field, but also a very handy and um, person who was making all, a lot of stuff, knitting and sewing. And in a sense, I was spoiled from very early age to have something different and something unique and something my own. So f- since then, I really have appreciation of very special pieces and unique wardrobes and unique looks and styles and somehow because of that, because actually of shortages that were all over Russia and my luck of having my mom being able to do this creative and practical in a way of often remaking clothes. I developed this likeness, as I said, for uniqueness and special pieces. So it's in a way is easy and natural for me to appreciate something special, and understand that you don't need so much to look well and to feel good. And I have experienced that really from very early ages when even the teachers in the school would stop me and say, oh, this is so lovely on you. Who made this? We had uniform in Russian schools, and part of it was this aprons, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. And um, she made this lacy ones. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, this was somehow so nice for me, so important. I was a very good academically, I was a very good student. I loved studying and I still do. But this part of wearing things, even enjoying the materiality of uh, clothes was also in me and it was uh, developed, I think, at that time. And noticing that people actually notice and they pay attention and they like things that are aesthetically different or or special. Call them beautiful, call them stylish, but with some sort of a difference. So that gave me this love for clothes. And I wouldn't say fashion. We didn't really have this big fashion or fashion idea. The fashion magazines were very limited. And I actually remember all of them, they were Russian ones and they were not easy to get since I was growing up without much advertising. So I really wasn't spoiled in terms of seeing visual pictures of stuff. So I have this humble, normal appreciation of beautiful materiality that is also practical and functional, but then also aesthetically and somehow psychologically as well fulfilling. And I loved styling. I knew, oh, I want to combine these things. And I know what I can put together from this little baby age, Uh, like dressing dolls, I call. And I'm saying that because in the modern world, I would be going into a fashion college or styling college. At that time, these professions, especially the stylist, it didn't even exist. I think that word didn't exist, definitely didn't exist in my country. Sewing and making clothes was not my interest, so I didn't pursue that. So I went to study linguistics, philology. I'm so fond of that science. I think it's uh, also, we can have a separate conversation on that, but I <laughs> yes, learned sure. English and uh yeah, became an expert in the language and I wanted to teach the language. And I love also, of course, the language as an expression and medium that you can communicate everything through. And of course, if we talk about clothes, it's also a medium of communication. So somehow it yeah. is related. But I came to that a bit later when fashion, I realized, is a big industry. I actually ended up working abroad. My first job after doing graduation from the mm-hmm. Russian university was in Dublin. This is the beginning of the 90s. And it's also very interesting that I missed my reliance on my mother's supply of things that at that time yeah. I could already tell her, I, I would design something and oh please make it this way and make it that way. The shortages were stopping in Russia and we had, in fact, an influx of very cheap supply of close, suddenly this abundance, but it wasn't the abundance of today. It was really, I don't know whichever strange way imported things in bags, like poor quality, but we were people were suddenly seeing this abundance of cheap stuff. And this is not even about fast fashion. This is just, I forgot the names for this kind of illegal trafficking of of cheap stuff into Russia and reselling it there. It was before the famous brands arrived. But mind you, in Russia, in spite of the shortages, people were very well aware of important fashion houses. Because if you look at Russian history in the past, in the pre-revolution days, during the Tsarist times, Cartier, for example, was a supplier of a Russian court. It was the only court, it was the first court it started to supply. So the appreciation for beauty existed in the society before the revolution. Then we have this history of kind of unification of things, people, looks, and um, I suppose styles. But then at the beginning of the 90s, right before the fast fashion brands really developed and appeared and then also arrived in Russia, I was living in Ireland where there wasn't much choice of good clothes, but it was in front of my own eyes then at the beginning of the nineties, fast fashion was developing there. And I think rightly or wrongly, I feel it's a very consumer oriented society where ended up in the West.
0: yeah so after getting to know a little bit about what happened in ogla's life in russia the poor quality of stuff that were brought into the country growing up and seeing how the industry was just growing all of a sudden how was it evolving in europe because we know a lot of these brands started coming out from europe and how was it happening in europe ogla continued the story about what was happening in europe
1: in western europe people were not bringing clothes and bags to resell and to saturate the uh, the market it was the fast fashion times the development of affordable clothes that of course on the one hand is fantastic that people suddenly could have access and could afford Mm -hmm. styles that are aesthetically pleasing that are developed because they were usually copied, they were developed by good designers and high-end fashion houses. And suddenly, at some point towards the end of the 90s, it was really a proliferation of this cheap, affordable clothes that was changing every few weeks. People had access to it. It was harder and harder to become unique. And we now, of course, understand it was done because the production moved to the countries where it was very cheap to make it. That is a huge issue. Out of sight out of mind who, in what conditions made our clothes, at what cost? We didn't ask those questions in the 90s or very few people asked. So now that is, of course, is changing. And that is, of course, a part also of sustainable fashion to look into the whole of production process and to look not only on the ecological, environmental impact of clothing, but also on ethical conditions. Then I ended up going back to Russia uh, and seeing also big changes there. And I worked for MTV in Moscow.
0: Before you went back to Russia, had you worked in the industry? Not, when you were no, outside? not,
1: not yet. Not yet. No. It was a trading company where I worked. I became a trading executive, starting with the translation, uh, translator's role. So it was a completely trading and marketing and sales position. So then I returned to Moscow. I got a job with MTV and launching the channel was also a very amazing, very special time. And that was the time also Russia was really, it was 1998, opening up and there were lots of things. And of course, clothes was a very big interest and still the access wasn't as straightforward or easy as today. But style was just settling in and people were uh, finding it. And it was quite controversial as well because you could be too radically dressed for the conservative. at that time, Russian taste. But MTV, of course, was a very open place and atmosphere and very inspiring. I worked there uh, on uh, audience research. So, of course, we also looked at the VJs at the looks at the clothing and how the audience responded to that. Then life developed so that I moved back to Europe. I was in Amsterdam. And really, to be honest, Amsterdam became a place for me of all these aesthetic inspirations. I was doing a a master's degree there in communication science, and you can now trace a little bit, okay, I'm into communication, the languages, the linguistics, and also the like a fashion communication end of it was very interesting for me. So while I was studying, I was also involved in local projects uh, with some artists and designers, and uh, this is beginning of the 2000s. And aesthetically, traditionally respect design. I met people doing experimental fashion. If you think at that time, Antwerp and designers, which are not so far from Holland, they, there was, the school was developing and growing. So it was a very special atmosphere and I became styling. It was really a kind of a natural development, like, and really like playing. I always say, it's like, dressing dolls it's not a real job I'm, you know styling yeah, is you. <laughs> <laughs> so i was also a personal stylist then life at that stage i was married with one child and we moved to kiev for my husband's work and uh, again another very interesting thing it was during the uh, orange revolution times And again, I can witness that it was feeling at the beginning of it as a very also liberating and open and very positive thing. It was amazing. And I was... Nearly immediately approached uh, by people. You're the best dressed couple in <laughs> Kiev. And we just came from Amsterdam. We didn't even notice yeah. that. And uh, styling, would you do that? So I was involved with magazines and uh, private people, because also people, especially women that now got into politics there, they wanted to dress well. And I think being exposed to this, you know, contemporary culture and cutting edge things, really, I didn't think of that I just thought it's normal everyday things that what I see and how people are but I think it was quite a quite advanced so it was naturally kind of easy for me to style
0: so what makes this story interesting for me is that this is the journey of how the world changed into just producing and producing and consumers were also caught up With this new trend, and the demand started growing higher and higher, and this is where we are. We can all witness from the story that Olga has shared with us today. So we have heard a lot of things that happened in this journey in the industry. I was a little bit curious on how Olga got into sustainability, because that was actually what drew me to contact her for this conversation. So let's dive into the story how Olga got into sustainable fashion.
1: So I always stayed at the, if you like, at the styling end of fashion. But until I came to Berlin in 2014, I didn't really come across sustainability in fashion or across that question. And that, when I discovered it, I think that's also quite a showing story I will tell you how in a moment, but I want to say I was really shocked when I thought, oh, I'm now learning about the negative impact of this fan industry. Oh, my God. And I thought, I'm in that industry. I read all the contemporary magazines, uh, publications. This knowledge escaped me, and nobody mentioned it. All these fashion people around me, I was really shocked, and I thought, this is very serious. If me involved, okay, not in production, but in content creation, is not aware of such a problem, what can we expect from people who are more removed from fashion industry? I, that for me, it was like, even now it gives me the goosebumps. The realization of it was like, I can't believe this doesn't make sense. How come they don't, nobody talks about it. And I will tell you how I discovered and so I came to Berlin and I thought, okay, I'll try styling here. And Berlin was full of styling projects and things like this. And uh, at some point, I thought, okay, maybe uh, and, and fashion uh, weeks in Berlin, maybe not as f- famous as the fashion capitals like Paris, Milan, London, uh, but. It was a very interesting time. There was an alternative fashion week showing diverse designers, emerging designers. Unfortunately, that stopped, but it was a very interesting time. There was a bread and butter show. Again, I happened to be in a place where there was even more <laughs> cutting-edge things in fashion without it being, you know, without even the older thing realizing it. But it was good to be the insider of this. And kind of, it was, again, normal. <laughs> but now I think, God, it was so advanced. I was recently looking at the reels from this Alternative Fashion Week, and I know it was very tough for the organizers to to put it together, and eventually it disappeared. Sadly, because I looked, wow, this is real fashion. This is amazing So I go this alternative fashion week and you, at some point I think, okay, I I see what is this green fashion week? Yeah, it's some strange thing probably, but it wasn't very highly promoted either. But I ended up, I was, okay, the standard fashion, like what's new, let's go see something uh, different. Let's just see it. Yeah. So I ended up during uh, one of the fashion weeks, actually subscribing to a tour. Of sustainable fashion and sustainable fashion shops. And we went across a few shops that were selling sustainable designers and people, the shop owners who curated the, uh, the choice, the collection was showing that. And it was mind blowing, like eye opening. That's where the transformation and the shock <laughs> happened when I realized, first of all, fashion is polluting. I believed how. I was very lucky to have a former student of master's degree in sustainable fashion who was on the tour and I was pulling her all the time, not really. And how is that? So she was my also fantastic source of, like, you know, she was immediately there and I knew then all the sources were to go to after this tour in order to satisfy my curiosity and disbelief as well and the shock. Since then, we actually spoke together at different sustainable fashion events, international events. But at that time I was like, no, this can't be. So I discovered this. I can share with you what it is, what it is that is wrong with the fashion industry. And it was a shock for me. And I was very upset because, no, I I love this industry. It's only there to make us all happy. (laughs) (laughs) It's not true. (laughs) I had, you know, kind of deep down also big controversy inside me. But also, if you think of styling, I also knew people. You know, in the past, I would have had clients that would say, like what is, you know, what do you want to achieve? What kind of look? You go through the all different uh, mood boards or questionnaires and the meeting ups. And sometimes people say, I want to look rich. And you know, and you feel oh, there is something wrong. Of course, we all want to look well and, you know, healthy and happy. And it's actually good that people are so honest and they say directly, I am not rich, but I want to look rich. I respect that. But at the same time, it's very saddening, yeah, right? It shows the big division that even through clothes we're trying to achieve something, that we are really trying to be somebody else, that we have these false values, that we are trying to aspire to and fulfill. This is so wrong. And I thought, oh my God, these people who have issues... With putting the look together and being satisfied and happy with the look, whether it is expensive or cheap or secondhand, whatever. It's not a natural skill for, for most people, I would say. And but and they're trying, and they're trying to achieve something, often not even being themselves, but to copy something, to be rich, to be like that. This is more a psychological issue, not exactly an aesthetic and style issue. Oh, it's all very related. It's a very interesting topic, of course. But I thought, and with these people, they're so manipulated, of course, by the industry. I already knew from styling for commercial shoots, I thought, we're creating this beautiful picture, but maybe it's unattainable. As art, it's perfect. But as an aspirational thing, we're making people feel bad, maybe, or inadequate, or they can't afford it, or it was heavy. Even now, I think it, it's such a responsibility to work in an industry like that, that, that can actually manipulate people, use them. And instead of helping them make them feel worse.
0: Yeah. It's a really serious case. It is
1: a serious mm-hmm. case. It still is going on. Yep. And we're so used yeah, to that. Still. Yeah. Well, I want to look and what is in that magazine. I, I think it's less now. I think it's not so acute. And all this last couple of years, many things were opened up and, uh, all this general big crisis, I think also re-evaluation of the values, we're getting there. But still, and at that time, I thought, yes, indeed, it's life is full of controversy. Everything you do is uh, political and controversial. And so I wanted to, for myself, to look for the truth in it, to create goodness through beauty. So, so for me, really, it's beauty, truth, and goodness that are universal values that are always there apparently all of our value system is based on them and i realized this is so simple and this is a guiding guiding principles i think they should be for everything everybody makes and especially for the fashion industry beauty has to be aesthetically nice truth we have to know what this clothes what's behind this clothes how it is made It has to be sold to us in a truthful way, not manipulating us, not greenwashing us. It has to be true. You, as a fashion brand owner or producer, have to be true to yourself. How you're making this, responsibly, you should be making it. And goodness sums it all up, that all everything you do, your things you produce, or if you're a consumer, things you buy, they should only create goodness for your own sake. (laughs) Then we're in a better world. Then we're in a sustainable world.
0: Okay, so yeah, someone might be wondering, the industry is polluting, it's polluting, it's doing this, it's doing that. What is exactly wrong with the fashion industry and how is it really polluting the environment? So Olga went on to give us some viewpoints on what is happening in the supply chain of this industry and what we should watch out for.
1: what really shocked me as the information about the pollution, because I came to ecological thinking and environmental, I wouldn't say activism, but ideas through fashion exactly on that day. And I think fashion is then also after such a shock, I have recovered over an hour and I thought I can use fashion to create this beauty, truth, and goodness, and to change the world. And you know, it really happened. I will tell you later the facts there yeah, of the fashion industry. You can actually Google them, yeah, fashion industry and the environment, and you get the list of what's wrong with it. A whole long list. A whole long list. What can I do? You are selling, I'm not selling these cars. I'm not selling this petrol. I'm not a plant that is pumping our atmosphere with this polluting, smoke. I don't know what you're making. You're making concrete. You're making prototype. What can I do? I have to be, in a way, a victim of all these big industries. And I also didn't understand, but how can it be? And then I also probably thought, even if I understand, what do I do with this polluting pipe? Where do
0: I start from? Yeah,
1: where do I start? (laughs) Because to be honest, when I was on that tour of sustainable fashion shops, we were told fashion and textile industry, because textile, of course, is bigger than fashion. We have home, uh, domestic textile. We have a lot here, carp- carpets, curtains, uh, upholstery. Fashion textile is a number two polluting industry. What? Now, I will have an, I make a note here straight away. This was 2016, 2017, when this was the... General statement, kind of accepted. Now they say it's not exactly that. There were more. There was more research and more precision put into that that investigation. And they say still, fashion is one of the five most polluting industries. This is, I mean, fashion and textiles. This is bad enough because now we know we can still stop the climate change. And if we stop one of the fifth most polluting industries. Creating damaging the world, then of course we have achieved a lot. So we can leave the fertilizers, the pipes, the uh, automobile, the petrols to others. Okay, fashion relates to, of course, the, ke- the chemicals and the petrochemicals. As my interest is fashion, if I concentrate on it, I can still make an impact, but also I can just plainly understand people how is industry connected to the environment and and from that all of us can actually decide for ourselves what I can do in terms of helping this. So with this knowledge of fashion as a number two polluting industry, okay, today we know that fashion, now there's more precise uh, research, creates up to 10% of global CO2 emissions because its supply chain is very long. Yeah. And we can briefly very, go very through long. it because it's you can understand everybody can understand that so the footprint of every garment is actually huge and we have a lot of clothes a lot of textiles and it all adds up and i thought what is happening in my own country i we all love fashion there is personal styling in russia is a very big and successful good easy business so with that amount of clothes and this huge population appreciation of good things i think in russia nobody at that time nobody knows this is a crime this is very uh, dangerous because even if certain countries in the west are awaken and they help helping to improve they're changing they're doing something what's happening in my own country which is full of educated people it's just enough to tell them and they will be able to contribute to the improvements rather than just being mindless consumers. And it's also not fair to keep them as mindless consumers. And I thought, I'll go in and find out. Yes, no information. At some point, there was something and very little, not enough. While ecologists are trying, but there's a divide at that time. Now there has been more activism and more awareness, but still big division. And I went to people at ecological conferences and events because Russia had a year of ecology in 2017. Every year we have a year of a certain topic. So I was also, again, very lucky. I went to this, approached these people. I knew some of them and I said, I want to speak about fashion as a polluting industry and how it's improving already because I saw the solutions and how guys, all of us in Russia, we can also contribute to that because we probably have already done some research and development. We probably dropped it. We don't even know it's necessary to create alternative fabrics, for example. I'm sure we're well able. So let's look into that. I was not believed by people in this ecological field, by the experts, Really? Absolutely. I was told we have important things to discuss at these events and conferences. What is this fashion? What has it to do with our problems and our mission? And I was like, and if you think, (laughs) ecologist, that was a shock. (laughs) And I thought that means, yeah, okay, that is
0: there is something missing.
1: Absolutely. And whether I am that missing link, I can fill up some of that so I I it only gave me more strength and I thought so my, my Russia became my focus believe it or not I uh, from Berlin I would travel there and um, <laughs> yes access all these events and people and places and got quite uh, sure I wasn't alone but I was The mad one, I think, the the determined one to, uh, and I had, of course, access to all the Western sources of information and firsthand information. So I had such an advantage to go and to say, this is how it is, what I see, what there is. Uh, I went to Copenhagen Fashion Summit, okay, firsthand information. The only Russian speaking source, I was representing a Russian language media and they said, we don't want a publication about that. It was a fashion magazine. I won't mention which one. It wasn't from Russia, but it was a Russian-speaking territory. And they said, "I said I can um, for the press pass. I can. I will write an article for you." They said, "No, for this topic is not a
0: topic. 2017." Wow! Wow! And they clearly knew. They knew it.
1: They kind of knew, and they thought small doesn't sell. So imagine we're all connected, and my. And by the way, today, my biggest question is to the marketing people and PR. I want the truth from them to the public. We, uh, even with this podcast, we reach out to people. But how many, while the well-established magazine with the fashion topic, it's their mission. It cannot remain on the periphery but they're doing a a good big improvement as well and since then you know they have all sustainability issues sustainability editors the first sustainability vogue editor was in australia i think 2000 maybe 17 definitely 18 it was the first breakthrough and then yeah it's catching up so now it's not a shocking topic but when i came And I always say, I Google sustainable fashion in the Russian language, zero results. My God, (laughs) now somebody asked me how many now, it's over uh, 9 million results of that phrase in Russian. And Mm -hmm. a little bit, I know that I was a part of it. And
0: it's it's nice as well
1: that it's changed. Mm -hmm. And if you Google it in English, it's many, many times more. So it still is lacking, but it's getting momentum for sure. It is probably true that, you know, the ecologists and the scientists not using fashion as a tool, as a communication tool, are probably also losing out, but I, I don't mind. I respect it. this is not about uh, your look always, but I said, I will help you <laughs> to bring your issues, ecological issues, scientific issues, climate change issues to the attention of everybody with fashion because we all wear it. And some of us really love it. And as a fashion person, I am in a very strong position on a stage talking from the fashion <laughs> uh, position, but also dressed in an interesting way. So to speak, it was a success because as I say, fashion is, was at fault, is changing right now, very fast, but not fast enough to manage with this climate uh, change and sustainable development goals. There is work to be done, of course. But it's, a again, I will repeat, a fantastic communicator for complex ideas. Now that you've heard that fashion is very polluting, maybe very briefly I will describe how is it. And of course, when you understand that, then you can apply that knowledge to any industry, any uh, product that we create has environmental footprint because of the resources that go into it. Say with the fashion garment, if you say, take anything that listeners uh whatever you're wearing now at the moment you can look at it and you think okay is it made of cotton or wool does it have plastic or uh, other material buttons or zips uh, does it have glue if you look at our shoes for example you will see so many materials in one garment so many
0: materials Actually, before we get into the, uh, the impact, the materials and the other part, you know, one thing I like about your story is it has a mixture of cultures, right? You've had experiences from cultures and you've seen how the transition of fashion has, has been. You even unintentionally getting into, you know, uh, the fashion industry, getting exposed to different, you know, variety of designs and all that, and all of a sudden, boom, The industry that you so loved is impacting the world negatively. But there is a new trend, fast fashion. And before you get into the impact of the materials and all that, I want you to briefly touch um, this aspect. What is fast fashion? Because when you Google fast fashion, it's just everywhere. And it's now awakening a lot of people because of its impact on sustainability.
1: So if you think originally fashion, I think before 1800s was a slow fashion because people made clothes more or less like me growing up and my mother made uh, things for me. But then with the industrial revolution we introduced new technology like sewing machines so we could already have uh, factories. Unfortunately it was also connected to sweatshops situations already then and there were also disasters already then when there were fires and people working long hours. And, of course, imagine the conditions at that time. So we come to the last century now. And uh, okay, after the war, industry is developing, I think, by the 60s and 70s, still in a slow ways. But we have innovations. We have polyester. We have nylon. We have some new materials. We still, as ourselves and the environment, can afford it. We can... Uh, experiment and create. I think 60s and 70s were an interesting time before any of this really fast fashion industrial process, uh, when fashion clothing became a form of personal expression. And uh, and of course, we had already high street and we had high street brands. But somehow, it wasn't so overwhelming. It wasn't at the level of overproduction. But then in the 90s, and that's what I witnessed when I moved to Dublin, I just happened right there, the end of the 90s, beginning of the 2000s, the really low-cost fashion exploded. And if you think about it, then online shopping also takes off. You know, the high streets become very similar in every city, the same big fashion shops, I mean fashion shops, the cheap fashion shops there. And as I say, yes, we have a lot of people to dress. Fantastic. We have affordable clothes. As I said, we didn't question how is it that it's so affordable. And suddenly for the first time, people could afford looks from the catwalks. So fast fashion was exploiting that our, I suppose, a lot of people's desire to look like like a celebrity or like a, Fashion uh, latest uh, look from the very famous design house. But of course, the manufacturing was using cheap materials. We didn't realize at the time how polluting they were, how dangerous they were, how they they killed the environment in
0: other ways. Oh boy, it's been an interesting conversation already and I just can't wait to bring you the rest of this conversation. But hey, the fashion industry... It's really broad, and I think that as you have listened to this conversation, you realize that right from the beginning of the supply chain to the end, where we keep buying and wearing clothes, there is something that is definitely missing, and as producers and consumers, we all have a part to play, and as we mentioned some time here on this podcast, consumers do have a say In making things change in the industry. And on today's episode, what I want you to pick out is that you have a part to play in telling these industries that there are certain things that we do not want. And so change them in the industry. There are a lot of social issues that are going on that we could not capture here. On this particular episode, but I hope that this will provoke you to get online and research about the brands that we are buying from and where they get their raw materials from. And I think it's really important that we all add our voices to make a change happen. Because if we protect the environment, it will definitely protect us. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Green Living Chats podcast. This initiative is to educate and create awareness on things that really matter. We look forward to hearing your thoughts and comments as we get interactive on our social media platforms at Echo Amit Solutions on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and LinkedIn. If you would like to be part of these conversations, contact us via email at jlcpodcasts at echoamedsolutions.com or see our contact details in the show notes. Our conversation today was just part one of a two-part series. So see you on the next episode for part two of today's conversation. And remember, live green.